0: Please open with me to Matthew chapter 24, Matthew chapter 24, as we continue our way through Jesus's message on his second coming. If you're just joining us, Matthew chapter 24, it's packed. I've been taking forever and I don't apologize. Um, in verses 3 through 28, if you're looking at Matthew 24, you're looking down your Bibles right now, you just look through verses 3 through 28, you go, what's that about? Well, Jesus gave several signs that would come upon the world like labor pains, uh, in particular, right before he returns, that seven year period right before he returns called the tribulation. That's what verses 3 through 28 are about. All the signs that would precede his coming. Jesus said there would be false Christ. Wars and rumors of wars. Nation would rise against nation, kingdom against kingdom. Uh, there would be earthquakes and pestilence and persecution, apostasy, false prophets, lawlessness and lovelessness all these things he kind of lays out there. So real wonderful scenario. There would be a sign in the middle of the tribulation, the abomination that causes desolation spoken of by Daniel, the prophet that would bring about the great tribulation. Really, everything gets kicked up and all these signs start being poured out on the earth in greater iterations. And it's a bad situation. then the everlasting gospel will be preached by an angel from heaven. And every tongue tribe nation will understand the gospel in their own language or without excuse. And then Jesus says the end will come. Then in verses 29 through 31, if you're looking down at your Bibles, 29 through 31, Jesus describes his second coming. Let me read it for you. Immediately after the tribulation of those days, then the sun will be darkened, and the moon will not give its light, and the stars will fall from heaven, and the powers of heaven will be shaken, and then will appear in heaven the sign of the Son of Man. And then all the tribes of the earth will mourn, and they will see the Son of Man coming on the clouds with, of heaven with power and great glory. And he will send out his angels with a loud trumpet call, and they will gather his elect from the four winds, from one end of heaven to the other. And so we left off last week, right after that description of Jesus's return in verses 32 through 35, where right after speaking about his return, Jesus begins to answer the disciples question back in verse three about the timing of his return. Cause they want to know when is actually this going to happen? He's been giving them all the signs to this point. He's given them kind of a layout. This is what my return will be like, but when is that going to happen? And so Jesus is answering in verses 32 through 25. He says from the fig tree, learn its lesson. As soon as its branches become tender and put out its leaves, you know, that summer is near. We can all relate to that, right? So also when you see all these things, all the things that have spoken of in the previous verses, the ones I just laid out, you know, that the end is near at the very gates. Truly. I say to you, this generation will not pass away until all these things have taken place. Verse 35, heaven and earth will not pass away, but my words uh, heaven and earth will pass away, but my words will not pass away. So Jesus lets us know that the generation that sees those things happen, he's talking about the generation alive during the tribulation that sees those events happening. That generation will not pass away. Obviously a lot of them are going to die. He's just saying within that time frame, he will return. All these things will be accomplished. And he puts a stamp on the end. He says, Hey, listen, exclamation point, heaven and earth are going to pass away. But what I just told you, it's not going to pass away. You can bet it's going to happen. And so the question that the disciples had, and we have, we all have is when will Jesus's return be exactly right? How many of you want to know when is Jesus coming back? Exactly. Anyone? Yeah. I like that makes it a whole lot easier for me. Well, We know that it will happen at the end of the tribulation. We know that exactly. Verse 29 says so saying that he will come immediately after the tribulation of those days. So when will Jesus physically return to the earth? We're not talking about the rapture. We're talking about when is Jesus coming back? Verses 32, uh, 29 says at the end of the tribulation. So that gives you an idea. There's a seven year period at the end of that time. Immediately after that, Jesus is going to come back. Well, in verses 32 through five, it tells us that the generation that sees those signs, the tribulation, right? Generation, the tribulation generation will not pass away until he re- returns. So we have a general knowledge. God has not left us without a, a time frame. He has given us a, a general idea about when he's going to return. And we know that at the beginning, the beginning of the tribulation kicks off with the pale horse and that's in revelation, but the pale horse is the revelation is the revealing of the antichrist. And the, what the antichrist does is he sets up a seven year treaty that's spoken about in Daniel chapter nine, verse 27 and revelation six, eight. He sets up a seven year treaty with Israel, which he's going to break at the halfway point where you get the abomination that causes desolation. So, the question is, well, if we know all these things, when exactly is Jesus going to return? We know it's at the end of tri- the seven year tribulation. And Jesus begins to address that question regarding the exact timing of his return. As we pick up this morning in verse 36, ready? But concerning that day and the hour, no one knows. <laughs> Let's pray. <laughs> oh no. No. You know, no one knows, not even the angels in heaven, nor the son, but the father only is what Jesus says. Now, right off the bat, Jesus has given us an understanding of the signs of his return. He didn't want us to be ignorant of the seasons of what it would be like right before his turn. He's laid out the whole plan for us as believers. We're not outside of the plan. We're inside. God as a good father has now given us understanding into how the world wraps up. That's pretty cool. You know, all these things before, even in, in, if you look in Matthew 24, somewhere there, he says, see, I've told you beforehand. I just want you to know what's happening before it's coming. And so believers are not ignorant of the general time of his return at the end of the tribulation. Nevertheless, Jesus explicitly tells us that no one knows that day nor the hour, except for the father. It would seem that if anybody should know when Jesus is returning, it would be the angels who are continually before the face of the father. Jesus says in Matthew 18, 10, it, would you figure the angels who do the bidding of God and who are right before his throne worshiping, they would be in on the plan. But what does it say? They don't know. And absolutely. It would seem that the son of God, God, the son would know. And this obviously brings a big theological question here. I personally believe that right now, absolutely Jesus knows, but in his flesh, Philippians chapter two, six, when he was incarnate, he being equal with God, didn't, he gave up his his, uh, many aspects of, of, of these things to become human. He, he, uh, he humbled himself. He descended, he condescended is what they call. And so Jesus in this carnation, when he was here, He didn't know the day or nor the hour. He was just about the will of the father, whatever it was. Obviously God gave him revelation of things, but Jesus here says, I don't even know, but obviously he does now. And so if the angels don't know, and Jesus, when he was here on the earth, didn't know what do we do with anyone who says they know the day, the hour, Jesus is coming back. How many of you have heard, Oh, the end of the world is going to happen in Because of how many of you heard that recently? And if you don't, then anyone, we absolutely, when people starts telling you when the world is going to end, when they tell you the days in particular, the day that Jesus is going to return, that's what this is talking about. They say, they know what do you do with that? Either one, they're deceived, either number two, they're ignorant or one, number three, they're lying or all, all of them. So don't get caught up. If pastor Matt says, ah, I've got a revelation from God. He's coming back on this date, this time. Start throwing rocks at me. Right? Church history is full of false predictions. If you just look within the last 200 years, you have something called the great disappointment. How many of you are are familiar with what the great disappointment is? So it's usually if you're not a church history kind of person, then you kind of don't know. In recent history, you have the great disappointment back in the mid 1800s, where those that follow the teachings of William Miller, they were called the Millerites. They were greatly disillusioned when his prediction that Jesus would come back on October twenty second, eighteen forty four, didn't pan out. Where did he get that from? Well, he interpreted Daniel eight fourteen in a certain light. Remember when we're talking about all those weeks and days and all that kind of stuff, and um, tell the Messiah to return. Well, there's a verse there that talks about the cleansing of the sanctuary, and he interpreted that in all this math and type of stuff to say, hey, it's October. 22nd, 1844. That's when Jesus is coming back and he's going to cleanse the sanctuary. That means cleanse the world of sin is what he was thinking. So you had a group of people who followed him, believe that. And when that rolled around and it didn't happen, guess what happened? The great disappointment. That's what happened. Everybody was disillusioned. And there are many groups, actually religious groups that came out of that movement. The seventh day Adventist church, and they, that's why not so much anymore, but they originally started out by holding on to something called investigative judgment, investigative judgment began as, as part of this prophecy, basically that because it was a failed prophecy and Jesus didn't tr- come back. They, the guy went back and said, Oh, well, actually what happened? They gave another date, I think. And then, then finally he said, you know what? Actually what happened? Cause I got it wrong twice is that Jesus moved from the outside of the temple in heaven to the inside of the temple. And he starts to investigate everybody. And if you're worthy of resu- resurrection, if you find you worthy, then you'll be resurrected. That's seventh day Adventist theology. So it's a works theology. Uh, and there's a lot more there. I don't want to, I'm just brushing over, but Jehovah's witnesses came out of that background, the Millerites, and they broke away or they dis they dis they differed on the deity of Jesus Christ, obviously there. So that all came out of false prophecy that you can't get around that unless we throw stones. There's plenty of evangelical uh, pastors who are talking about when Jesus is going to come back and they lay down the exact days. Uh, You know, in recent years, held camping. I don't know if you remember that guy. He's gone and he's, he definitely knows now. Um, but the evangelist and radio broadcaster predicted that judgment day would be on September 6th, uh, not September 6th, excuse me. That's the other guy, uh, would be, um, I think it was May, yeah, 1994. That's it. September 6th, 1994. He said that that's when the world would end. And then he moved it to September 29th when that didn't happen. And then October 2nd, uh, then Jesus would return. Then May 21st, 2011, uh, he said, oh, there's going to, there's going to be Jesus will return and there'll be five months of fire and brimstone. And then on October 21st, 2011, then the destruction of the world. Nope. Just read Matthew 24, 36. No one knows the day of the hour. Matt does not know the day of the hour. I can tell you when it is. I have knowledge and revelation. You know where I got that from? Jesus said immediately following the tribulation, the sun will get dark and the sign of the sign of the son of man will appear and he returns. When is that exactly? I don't know. It's at the end of the tribulation. That's all we know. So church, are you kind of get the point? How easy it is for us just to go in weird directions on stuff even with the political stuff going on, everything they're telling us just lock into the words of Jesus. You just know, you don't know. So dismiss it. So these predictions go on. We know the season, but we don't know the day or the hour. And in verse 37, Jesus gives an illustration of how ignorant this world will be when he returns. How absolutely you would have, you would, you know, as we're reading through all these signs, we go, you, you've got to know with everything falling apart, right? But that's not what happens. They're totally ignorant up until the moment that Jesus returns, that he's returning. They're, ex- they're explaining it all away way for, di- for different reasons, probably. Verse 37, Jesus gives an illustration of how ignorant the world will be to his return. For as were the days of Noah, so will be the coming of the son of man. For as in those days before the flood, they were eating and drinking and marrying and giving in marriage until the day when Noah entered the ark and they were unaware until the flood came and swept them away. And so will be the coming of the son of man. Jesus compares his second coming to the days of Noah, to the flood of Noah. In Genesis chapter six through nine, it describes those times in in the flood of Noah, about the days of Noah. In particular, in Genesis six, verses five through eight, it says that the Lord saw that the wickedness of man was great in the earth. Do we see that the wickedness of man is great in the earth? Very interesting. Well, how so? Excuse me. And how so? And that every intention of the thoughts of his heart was only evil continually. Listen, God, we look at the actions, but God sees into the heart. He knows what's going on when we don't. And the Lord regretted that he had made the man on earth and it grieved him in, to his heart. That's another study. So the Lord said, I will blot out man whom I have created from the face of the land, man and animals and creeping things and birds of the heaven. For I am sorry that I've made them. So because of man's evil, God decided he's going to destroy creation. <clears throat> Most of it, but it says in verse eight, if you're there in Genesis six, verse eight, but Noah found favor in the eyes of God. Oh, praise the Lord. If you want to do a 23 and me, you're going back to this guy. And God let Noah, in on his plan about the flood. He let him know what was coming and that he would kill everyone and everything. And he was just in doing it. You know, that's interesting. I think we've got our theology wrong. If God is a God of love, why would he allow is the question. And I think there is a sense in which we, we wrestle with those things, right? Because we have a sense of justice. We're created in his image. But there's the other side. If God is a God who is just and holy and pure, why would he allow us to breathe? That's the question we should be asking. Well, he let Noah in on his plan. I'm going to flood the world. He told Noah to build an ark, which was the only means of God's mercy. It was the only means of God's mercy. The means of God's salvation from his coming judgment. And second Peter chapter two, verse five speaks of Noah. When he says he calls Noah a preacher of righteousness. Never thought of Noah as a preacher of righteousness. Did you? I've kind of felt like he was a boat builder, but he's a preacher of righteousness. That, That means a proclaimer, a herald of God's righteousness to the dark world around him. How did he do that? Through his purity, through his obedience, through his actions, through his works, what he was doing in the midst of the world that was going the other direction. He was not going with the flow. He was holy. He was set apart. He found favor in God's eyes, he found grace in God's eyes. But the world around Noah ignored the crazy guy building the boat. They chalked it up to who's the weirdo building a boat who keeps building a boat for 600 years or however long it was, who is preaching about this judgment that's coming. And they've been saying it for so long that they just, Forget about him. And nevertheless, there he was consistently building the boat, declaring to the world, the only means of God's salvation. You have to be in the boat. This is obviously a picture of Christ. You have to be in Christ. He's the only salvation there is. That's crazy. The world says, Jesus says back in Matthew 24, 38, look at it. Matthew 24, 38. For as in those days before the flood, they were eating and drinking and marrying and giving in marriage until the day when Noah entered the ark. The world was going on about their business, doing what they do. It's just describing life. Expecting nothing on the horizon, verse 39, and they were unaware until the flood came and swept them all away. Jesus says, so will be the coming of the son of man. That's exactly like it will be when he returns. Unaware of the world going about the way it is. And all of a sudden the the waters start to rise, it starts to rain, and then there's nowhere to go. And then the end comes. No one knew that God would shut the door, but he did. And when he shut that door, no one's getting in. And everybody died except for those who were in the ark and the select animals, obviously, because God wasn't done with creation yet. Jesus says it'll be the same when he comes. That's what's gonna be that's what it's gonna be like on the earth. That's gonna be the attitude of the world. When he shuts the door, when he says enough and the skies roll open, and his son appears, and he returns in great glory. In Noah's day, the world was totally blindsided, and Jesus now says in verse 40, he looks, he does that and he looks ahead now. As he's looking back at that picture, now he looks ahead. In verse 40 and 41. And we have to read these verses in that context. It says, then two men will be in a field, one will be taken and one will be left. Two women will be grinding at the mill, one will be taken and one will be left. The context here is not the rapture. The context here is Noah. It's about the return of the Lord. That's what he's talking about. So will be my return. That's what he's talking about here. The day of judgment. One will be taken, one will be left. Verse 31, if you go back in Matthew 24, what does it say that he will send out his angels with a loud trumpet call and they will gather his elect from the four winds, one from the end, one end of the other. That's what's happening on that day. He's going to gather the believers together. We're going to be caught up together with him and return those who are the tribulation saints. We've talked about this before. You see the two men will be in the field and one will be taken. One will be left. Two women will be in the grinding on the mill. One will be taken. One will be left. The point is that his return will take the world by surprise. So Jesus is telling us that we will not know the day or the hour of his return. Why is he telling us this? First of all, so that if anybody tries to tell you differently, you are not fooled because there will be many false Christs and many false prophets. Right? Secondly, verse 42. And this is his point in what he's going to be talking about for the remainder of this chapter. And at most of the next chapter, therefore stay awake. <laughs> therefore stay awake for you do not know on what day the Lord, your Lord is coming, right? He's telling us all this because they didn't know but you know, he's coming. So stay awake, stay awake. Jesus is telling us how we as Christians are now to live in the end times, the times leading up to his return. And the first thing he tells us, if you're taking notes, I want you to write this down. Stay awake. (laughs) Stay awake, right? Which means there's a difference between being awake and asleep. And this is important because this imagery is used over and over and over in the New Testament. I'm only going to give you a couple examples, but now he paints a picture for us in the rest of the chapter and most of the next one about how we as believers live in the times in these last times compared to the world around us. They're going to be unaware, but we're going to live awake. Does that make sense? They're going to be asleep, we're going to be awake. We are called to be awake, watching and waiting and anticipating his return. Now in verse 43, Jesus begins a series of illustrations. He's going to do it in different angles to let us know about this being awake and ready and aware and faithful and uh, being caught doing what he's called us to do when he returns all these types of things, right? Verse 43, but know this first example, that if a master of the house had known in what part of the night, the thief was coming, he would have stayed awake and would have not let his house be broken into. Therefore you also must be ready for the son of man is coming in an hour. What you do not expect. Here's the picture. A thief is going to break in a house. Now when thieves break into a house, I know that's a little different these days, but generally at night, generally in the dark, generally when you're asleep, do they go, Hey, I'm coming in. I know they do at Walmart and other places these days, but <clears throat> <laughs> he's describing a thief in the night. Take take advantage of you when you're not ready. And the master here wasn't aware of what was happening. He wasn't aware of the thief. If he had known he would have been ready, but he didn't know. So his house was broken into But unlike the master of this house, we are aware that he's coming. We've just been forever talking about it, right? Jesus is coming back. And so we have to do what? Stay awake, right? But the world is not aware. And they dismiss and they mock the return of Jesus Christ. Now we know the reason why Jesus is waiting so long. He desires that none should perish and that all should come to repentance. That's why he's totally waiting forever to return because his mercy is that great. Amen. Thank you, Lord. Thank you for the people that you will save. And I pray through us, but the Lord is coming back and the world is not aware. And this sleeping master of the house is like the unbeliever, like in the days of Noah not awake, not aware until it was too late. That same spiritual blindness is going to be over the world. When Jesus returns, that's the point. And so Jesus says in verse 44, therefore you also must be ready. Another word awake, ready for the son of man is coming at an hour. You do not expect. So Christ community fellowship, What do we do with the Lord's command here? What are we supposed to do? We got to get woke in the right way, right? We got to wake up. Got to wake up. Got to pray. So, he's going to give us this understanding more, more of the, what this looks like, but just to help you get a fuller idea, just real quickly, first Thessalonians chapter five, practice in your Bible, flip over, right? First Thessalonians chapter five, I want you to open up your Bibles and turn to first Thessalonians chapter five, get in the discipline of opening the word of God and let it open you. Click on it, tap it, slide to it, whatever we gotta do. Opening the pages. You wanna go analog? That's wonderful. If you have a lightsaber, cool. <laughs> Digital word, right? First Thessalonians 5. How many of you are going, I have no idea what a Thessalonian is? Praise the Lord. Welcome to the adventure. Don't let the enemy like give you a hard time about it. Come learn. Come learn how to go. You know what? I need to up my game. I need to find out where these things are. I got to wake up. Amen. It's like, Jesus says, know how to drive your car. Know what it's about. Make sure it's not going to break down. You're like, I have no idea what this is. You know, you open the hood and you go, forget that. So Jesus wants you to know. He wants you to wake up. Right. That was a guy analogy. But anyways, first Thessalonians five, one through 11. Paul's talking to a church. He's been with them. He's talked to them. He spent time with them. And he says, "Now concerning the times and the seasons, brothers, you have no need of anything to have uh, to have anything written to you. The times and the seasons, I don't need to write to you, for you you yourselves are fully aware that the day of the Lord will come what, like a thief in the night." That Paul had taught them this. He was a good pastor. He taught him about the return of the Lord. Right. He was a good shepherd. So they would be awake. You don't need, you know, they're, they're having concerns. They're writing letters back and forth because there's a They don't know in fullness this stuff, but Paul's reminding them, listen, when I was with you, I taught you, you have no need that I should teach you that this stuff again, but here it is. You yourselves are fully aware that the day of the Lord will come. How as a thief in the night while people are saying, Hey, there's peace and security. Then sudden destruction will come upon them as labor pains come upon a pregnant woman, then they will not escape. Verse four: underline this, but you are not in what? Darkness. So he's gonna use this imagery of dark and light, awake and asleep, to identify the difference between a believer and a non-believer. You're not asleep. How? brothers for that day to surprise you like a thief. So believers should not be surprised like a thief, right? We shouldn't be like going, Oh my gosh, you know, Jesus is coming. I wasn't thinking of, that. I wasn't aware of that. Obviously we're all going to be surprised, but he's saying, you're going to understand. This is a big part of our waiting on the Lord. We live like this. Amen. Why won't it surprise you? Verse five. For you are children of the what? Light, children of the what? The day. We are not of the night or of the darkness. Verse six, underline it. So then, let us not what? Sleep as others do. Who are the others? Or carnal Christians. But let us what? Keep awake. And be what? Sober. Paul is just repeating what Jesus is saying in Matthew twenty-four and twenty-five. Listen, a good pastor, a good teacher, a good elder, a good Bible study leader—they're going to remind you of what Jesus already said. You're just pointing out the same stuff. He, there's nothing greater than him. Amen. But he says there what? Verse eight. But since we belong to the day, let us be sober. They live in darkness. We're awake. We're sober and soberness. Here's a picture of living godly lives in light of his return and rule and reign. Paul describes being awake as this. He says, if you just keep reading there, verse eight, having put on the what? Breastplate of faith and love. This is how we're living in faith and in love. And we have a helmet for salvation. I'm not going to get into all this. You can read about it in Ephesians as well. But so, so why do we live this way? Why are we living like this? Why are we awake? Why are we sober? Why are we not falling asleep? Why are we aware of where first Thessalonians is? And not only what where it is, but what it says and what it means and how that relates to the Lord and how I live according to it. It's not just knowledge, but knowledge that produces love and obedience, right? Why are we living like that? Verse nine, for God has not what destined us to for wrath. God is not destiny to wrath. Why? But, but to obtain salvation through our Lord Jesus who died for us. So that whether we are awake or asleep, we might live with him. Give me a second on that. Awake or sleep. God is not destined who to wrath. We, who are we? The ones who are awake of the day of the light, the ones who are born again, right? By nature of you being a believer, there should be a, Innate awareness of Jesus's return. You're longing for it. You're waiting for it. There's an awareness of him while the world doesn't have that frequency going on. And he says, talks about Jesus who died for us so that whether we are awake or asleep, we might live in him. And he just flips the word, the terms awake or asleep. He's no longer talking about being born again or, or unborn again, he's now talking about whether you're living on this earth or you've died and you're with the Lord. Those are the terms he's now, he's, he's doing a play on words there. And he says, listen, whether you're alive or whether you're dead, you're living as if you're in his presence. That's his point. Are we living that way? Am I living that way? What effect would that have on us? If we knew that Jesus is going to come like a thief that he could be at any moment. Our master would be face to face with us. How would that change what we're doing? How we live. And I don't say this to throw a guilt trip. I say it to say, this is a time when God is calling us, you and me to repent and to look unto the eyes of Jesus, to let Him. Strengthen us and cleanse us and draw us and use us in this time that we have left for his glory, amen. Therefore, he says at the end of that, encourage one another and build one another up. This is your dean, your doing. So, we must be those who are awake. Back to Matthew 24, verse 45. Another illustration who then? Is the faithful and wise servant. Matthew twenty four. Those little leafy little things, like the little ribbons in your Bible. If you're super spiritual, you have two of them. <laughs> no, I'm just kidding. <laughs> you know, like the tassels? I'm just saying they're really useful. You know, a piece of paper, all that kind of stuff. I always have mine where I'm, where I'm set, you know, they're really helpful. So you can kind of go flip back and forth. So, so it looks like, you know what you're doing. That's why I use it. Who then is the faithful and wise servant? Underline that term faithful and wise, because you are going to see that through the rest of this. Cause Jesus is talking about how we are to live in light of his return. Who's the faithful and wise servant whom his master has set over his household to give them their food at a proper time. The faithful, my servant is the one busy about his master's business while he's away. And that's the picture here. God has set someone with a responsibility that they'll be accountable for. And the picture here is you have a master over house and they're supposed to feed people at the right time. Parents know this, right? That's the picture here. You've been given something. You've been given a time. You've been, you've been given time, talent, treasure on loan to you from the Lord above in, in, in your various diverse ways. You've all been given time. But God has given you something. And, and notice what's coming up here the parable of the talent, right? What do you do? with what God has given you. Do you bury it? Do you invest it in the kingdom? All those things. This is all what Jesus is talking about right here. So God's getting every person, time and talent and treasure to use for his kingdom and glory. The faithful and wise servant, Jesus says is the one who is awake. The one who is living in anticipation of his return is the one that God has entrusted with these things to give him glory. Ladies, you just had a retreat on wisdom, the wisdom of God, right? There's a difference between wisdom and knowledge, right? Knowledge is important. We know that knowledge puffs up, but love builds up, right? We know that, but how do you know how to love? You got to know how to love. God teaches us how to love, but the chief end of knowledge is not love is, is not knowledge. It's love, right? It's not just knowing a bunch of stuff. It's knowing how to live godly with the stuff, you know, to live in a Christ honoring Way. Does that make sense? I don't care if everybody knows so much. It's like, what do they do with that knowledge of God? Do they live it out? Do they love it out? Knowledge is knowing something. Wisdom is applying that knowledge to life and godly wisdom is doing that according to his will. Right? So God's calling us to be faithful and wise servants to be busy about his kingdom. Do you know? How to invest your time, talent, and treasure in the kingdom of God? These are important questions because Jesus is coming back. And look at verse 46. Blessed is that servant whom his master will find so doing when he comes. When he's actually doing what God has called him to do with those things. Truly I say to you, he will set him over all his possessions. This is speaking about rewards. God's going to reward you according to your faithfulness. Now there's a lot to get into a lot of avenues we can go, but I'm going to keep it simple. Listen, when we believe upon Jesus Christ, we all have the, I don't want to cheapen it. We're all saved. We all are in the kingdom. We all have the riches of Christ, but it seems here that in addition to that, And and again, this is a, this is when you're talking about the millennial kingdom and reigning and ruling with Christ, and you look at all the verses in revelation and all that kind of stuff, according to what you do, you will be rewarded on top of that. Right. And we'll get into that more when we talk about the the parable of the talents, but he says, man, you're going to be blessed. If Jesus comes back and finds you doing what he's called you to do which means we got to find out what that is and do it. Amen. Truly I say to you, will set him over all his possessions. He's going to give you more. He's going to bless you with more when he comes back, which is leading to ruling and reigning with him. So what will you doing? Be doing the moments before Jesus returns. What will you be about? What are your priorities? Good questions. It's usually the faithful and the wise person who gets the promotion. It's the way it should be. Who gets the reward? Jesus is saying the same. When he returns, the faithful and wise servant will be the one who Jesus catches living righteously. Being obedient, being faithful. Verse 48, however, but if that wicked servant says to himself, hi, my master's delayed. He begins to beat his fellow servants and eats and drinks with drunkards. The master of that servant will come on that day when he does not expect him. And at an hour, he does not know a day and an hour. He does not know. And what will he do? And he will cut him in pieces or cut him in half, cut him to sunder and put him with the hypocrites. In that place, there'll be weeping and gnashing of teeth. I think that's describing an unbeliever. But I also, there's enough ambiguity there where I'm just like, whatever that is, I don't want to be in that camp. Anyone else? You speak here sure of what typifies unbelievers. Those who have been given time, talent and treasure by the Lord. And yes, their lives are not marked by faithfulness or wisdom, but rather godlessness. Living in darkness is the idea. That's how they live. Like there's no return of the master. That's the idea. That's how the world goes. Jesus says, I'm going to come on a day. They don't expect it. I'm going to cut them to pieces. And Jesus is using imagery here. And he goes on to say, and there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. Jesus is saying, I will judge them and I will send them to hell. That's what he's talking about. In that place, there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. We can't dismiss hell. What's the church doing misrepresenting God in this? What does Jesus save us from? the wrath and the judgment of God in eternal hell fire, because he's just in doing it. You minimize this and you minimize the great sacrifice and the great grace of Jesus Christ and the total sufficiency of his blood to cleanse us from all sin. Let me tell you, whatever you've done, wherever you've been, whatever you're a part of the blood of Jesus washes totally and completely clean. He is the ark. He is the only means of God's mercy and salvation. And he freely opens his arms to all who would come to him. Come to Jesus Christ right now. Be cleansed of all your sin. Call it like it is. And his blood has washed your sin away. None of this is your place. It is a great salvation and hell It's a reality that the world increasingly denies and chalks up the craziness. And yet Jesus warns us over and over and over about the reality of it. And we get to delve into that reality as you get into the latter half of 25. But as we know, and as for, we know and believe it's, it's time to wake up. Amen. Church. It's time to wake up. It's time to wake up and start to build the boat. Start proclaiming Christ. Be about evangelism, being about caring about enough about the Lord, loving the Lord more than loving yourself, looking out into the world and saying, I'm going to love them more than I love my own, what they think of me. I want them to be in the boat. I know I can't make them get in the boat. That's a God thing, but I'm sitting here, building the boat, proclaiming the boat, living the boat in Christ. It makes sense. Time to live. Holy time to live in light of the soon return of Jesus Christ. So what are you going to do about it? What am I going to do about it? This is a you and God moment. Don't do this for me. Don't do it for everybody else around you. You have to between you and God That this, I will submit to you. I'll follow you. Don't do it because your husband's dragging you to church or your wife's dragging you to church or because you know, I want to peer this or that. That doesn't do anything. God sees right through the whole thing. This is what the Spirit's calling us to as a church. It's time to live. Wake up. Go sleeper. First Thessalonians five, again, verse four through eleven. I'm gonna finish with this. <clears throat> Let me just read it all. But you are not in darkness, brothers and sisters. for that day to surprise you like a thief. For you are children of the light, children of the day. We're not of the night nor of the darkness. So then let us not sleep as others do, but let us keep awake and sober and be sober. For those who sleep, sleep at night. And those who get drunk, get drunk at night. But since we belong to the day, let us be sober. Having put on the breastplate of faith and love and for a helmet, the hope of salvation for God has not destined us for wrath. but but to obtain salvation through our Lord Jesus Christ, who died for us so that whether we are awake or asleep, we might live in him. Therefore encourage one another and build one another up just as you are always already doing this week. I encourage you to do that, to encourage one another and to build one another up, spur one another on to love and good works, encourage one another as we see the day, um, approaching, man, I don't know about you, but it is hard sometimes. Right. And we need one another and, and we don't need to play church. We need to be the church. And so to speak into one another's lives as you get together throughout the week and say, ah, man, I'm not doing well. I need help. I need prayer. And these are the areas that I need prayer and, and help and to encourage and build one another up in these areas. Cause we all fall short and we've got one master and he's our great shepherd and he will, bind our wounds and tend to us. And he will heal us as we just seek him in the light. We are in the light. Amen. So just an encouragement, Maranatha. Amen. Lord Jesus come quickly. And then if you turn to, we, I, I know this is a big moment. We finished chapter 24. So I want to review it with you one more time. No, I was kidding. God, you're so good. Lord, thank you for this body of believers. And we just thank you for your word to us. Lord, let us be awake. We can't manufacture that, but we can respond to your spirit. So we ask humbly that your spirit would speak to us now and wake us up. Give us ears to hear. We pray not only for us, but every believer listening, Lord. And we pray for your church here in Walla Walla. Our brothers and sisters at the different churches that are gathered in your name, who love you and are called to you. Pray you'd wake us all up. It's the time to shine. Pray for our believers around the world, Lord, who are under heavy persecution, Lord. I know they're suffering, Lord. We pray for them. that you cause them to continue to live soberly. And Lord, it's going to all be worth it. These are light and momentary afflictions uh, compared to the eternal way to glory. Lord, when you return and that glory drops on us like an ocean, it's going to be awesome. So let us live like it now, Lord. It's in your name we pray and we gather and we go. In the name of Jesus, amen. All right, church. God bless you.